Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I was fascinated in you know, how you um, manage these boundaries between you know, employees in their professional capacity, in their union capacity perhaps, and in their private capacity. Uh, and, and it's such a challenge. And, and if you'll forgive a, a brief history lesson, um, you know, these issues really arise because our employment law comes from England and comes from medieval England. And employment law stems from a time when there were masters and servants and you had people with pretty much no rights who, who worked 24-7 in the homes of others. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organisation with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. This episode, I'm speaking with Kieran Pender, who is likely still in Tokyo covering the Olympic Games. I met Kieran a few months ago after The Age published a story on my departure from the Victorian Public Service because my employers were uncomfortable with me running Humans of Purpose after work hours. Kieran contacted the team at The Age and we were put in touch given Kieran's strong interest in advocating for employees' freedom of expression and right to a private life outside of work. During my departure process, Kieran was a tremendous support to me and gave me lots of helpful advice. So at this point, I guess you're wondering, who is Kieran Pender and what does he do? Well, Kieran is a writer, lawyer and academic. He's a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, a lecturer at the ANU College of Law and a journalist covering sports for The Guardian. Kieran is a bit like Batman and reminds me of how I aspire to live my life. By day, he's a human rights lawyer, and by night, he's a journalist covering all manner of sporting events, from the Tokyo Olympic Games to various world cycling championships to men's and women's World Cup soccer. He also finds time to write more broadly and demonstrates great thought leadership in his writing on matters of human rights law, specifically on employees' rights and where they start and end vis-a-vis their employer and their contractual situation. Kieran wears many hats, but on this occasion, he was wearing none, and he's just talking to me as a fellow human. Isn't that the best way to talk? I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kieran as much as I did. So I'm thrilled to be here, albeit remotely, with my good mate Kieran. Welcome to Humans of Purpose. Hi, Mike. Good to see you. It's great to see you. You look uh, nice, well, warm, refreshed, happy, in a good place. Mm. Um, as we normally do in Humans of Purpose, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your journey into the space you occupy today. Sure. Thanks, Mark. It's yeah, fantastic to be here. I think it's interesting you use the word space and I might start with that as the theme because I've always focused on spaces, plural. Uh, certainly you know, in my career journey to date, my professional and, and personal interests have always focused on a diversity of, of topics and areas and, and, and skills, which has been really important to me and I think it's been really helpful in you know, getting to where I am today and, and the enjoyment that I get from, from what I do. And, and so that sort of in short is I studied law while working at a law firm and also working as a journalist and, and juggling those, those three things um, meant a fairly elongated law degree, if I'm honest, um, but, but got me to a, to a place where I have these different hats that I wear. And I remember along the way, and even today, to be honest, I've still had people say to me at various points, You've got to pick one. You can't do all of this. You know, you can't be a, a, a journalist and a lawyer and an academic and, you know, whatever, whatever else takes my fancy. 
And I've been so lucky that I, I, I um, have been able to do all of these things. And, and, and I guess, you know, perhaps sometimes ignore that advice, even though it was very well-intentioned at the time and, and be able to just continue with that diversity of pursuits, um, which, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that I've done that because it, it leaves me in a position where I, I, I wear these hats and I, I get to explore the benefits of, you know, having a day job as a lawyer, a night job as a researcher, a night job as a journalist going off to, to the Olympics. So all fairly complementary roles, I would have thought. Um, but I think it's really interesting um, thing that people would kind of um, suggest that you can't do more than one thing at a time. I mean, we, we have frequently in our lives, we make choices to do, juggle multiple things or it's having a family and work. It might be um, going to gym and also having a job. So it's, it, it's very odd when someone sort of says to you, you have to make a choice, you do one or the other. Yeah, and and it's interesting because you, I mean you say this they're, com- they're complementary, and certainly I think they from a skills perspective they're complementary. But you know I, I work sometimes as a sports writer and sometimes as a as a lawyer, a human rights lawyer, and employment lawyer. You know entirely different fields substantively, as you say that they're, they're stitched together from a, a skill perspective. But actually, I love the, the d- diversity. And you know recently I was at in Adelaide at the swimming trials ahead uh, of the Olympics and you know covering sport and the narrative in that versus you know doing academic legal work is is so different but brings me such joy because of the variety and and I come I accept uh, I'm very privileged to be able to balance these various pursuits and, and that you know means sacrifices probably in other areas of my life and a lot of work and and, you know, perhaps not things that are sustainable, you know, forever. But, but yeah, I guess the message I would be really keen to, to, to leave with your listeners is, is that it's possible to, to wear multiple hats, to juggle multiple things. Um, I've many times in my career been told it's not, and, and I hope that, you know, if I can provide a little inspiration to anyone, it's that you can juggle different, very distinct hats. Yeah, and I think the degree to how well you've done it, um, you're not just somebody who writes an occasional column for the Canberra Times, which you do do, but you're also writing in many other publications. You're being sent by The Guardian to cover the Olympics, uh, which is just incredible given that your day job is a human rights lawyer. Um, so I think that there's a message in there that you can be great at multiple things. And I just want to put the question to you, do you think um, having a range of things that you do makes you better at all the things you do? I really think I, it, it does. It certainly helps a great deal. I think, you know, the, the communication skills that come uh, with my journalism work, both in terms of writing and communicating and then being able to engage with people. You know, being a journalist teaches you to ask questions and to engage with anyone. You know, I've, I've reported for The Guardian from all around the world. I've had conversations. I've had to interview people from, you know, interviewed um conflict refugees in parts of Russia to climate refugees in, in the Pacific to, you know, some of the most high-profile sports people in the world. Um, and, and, you know, that t- and then just everyday humans in, in, in Australia and elsewhere. And I think that teaches your communication skills that, you know, then are so useful for your law and, and vice versa, the legal perspective, I hope, brings something, a point of difference to my, my sports writing and my other writing. Um, so I'd make the assumption that the Guardian would have been the easier um, employer to kind of satisfy in terms of, um, you know, being happy with you doing multiple things. Was was it much of a conversation with the Human Rights Law Centre around wanting to continue with the journalism? 
I've always been really fortunate with my employers um, that I guess I've always packaged myself uh, as, as this holistic package. And so it hasn't really been a, uh, an option. Uh, if I can say that, I hope my boss isn't listening. Um, <laughs> but, but I, uh, you know, when I, I finished my studies, it was, was, had worked and then, you know, was, I, I, I moved to London at one stage in my career and I um, had already agreed to cover the World Cup in Russia for The Guardian and then I was offered this job in London and I, I remember saying to them, like, I really love this job, but uh, I've really committed to covering the World Cup in six months' time. So, you know, I, I'll only accept the job if, you know, you can give me five weeks off to go to Russia. And, and I think when, when you make it clear on the way in that this is who you are and you've got these multiple interests and, and pursuits, then people are fairly accommodating. Um, and then I think the, the, then once you're in, you've just got to prove your worth. Um, and so to me, I've always found professionally that the path of least resistance is, is yes, it's, it's, you know, proving that you're really, that you're good at what you do, you're committed, that the fact that you wear multiple hats doesn't detract from your commitment to any one place, um, pursuing that and then making it clear that the corollary of that is you really want to be able to do all these various things. And yeah, I, I've been very lucky and very fortunate in my different employers and have been very flexible. And I appreciate that may not be the case for everyone and certainly some employment areas, potentially the public sector, which we might come on to, are not necessarily quite as flexible. Well, um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good segue you make there because I, I think you kind of, you, you've led us down the path. So let, let us now travel down that path together. Um, I think the example that you give is um, somewhat utopian um, considering what I went through in my previous employment. Um, and, you know, part of the part of the origin story of um, meeting Kieran was that when the age uh, article went to print, uh, I believe Kieran, you reached out to Annika via Twitter. Yeah. Annika Smethurst. And then she uh, actually texted me your details if I wanted to get in touch for some pro bono um, advice and assistance. And um, you were just, you know, incredible to have somebody on my team who felt like they were really with me and understood what was going on. But that was a clear example there of a situation where, I'd gone into this uh, job in the public service with a clear history and current practice of um, making podcasts after hours as my kind of, I guess, in your case, journalism. So that, that would be my example of that. Um, it was known, it was disclosed, um, it was accepted. And then the minute um, things got a bit shaky a few months in, uh, all of a sudden email from the director saying, look, it's come to our attention that you do X, Y, Z in your private life. This is now a serious problem and you may be breaching the Victorian public service uh, code of conduct. Yeah. So it can go down, it, it can go down a pretty nasty pathway. I, I think maybe it would be good to talk a little bit about what are the boundaries um, that are imposed on employers in attempting to sort of prosecute or regulate uh what employees do after hours when they clock off yeah yeah and a great and really important topic and uh, as i've said to you in the past I, I was really sorry about what happened to you and and was why i reached out to offer my sort of solidarity uh, you, you know ironically enough these are issues that i've been interested in for a long time um at the beginning of my legal career working at a firm in canberra uh, Bradley Allen Love and, and one of the key partners there, a guy called John Wilson, had acted in a really important precedented setting case back in 2004 where there was a, a public servant who was also a union official at Customs, a guy called uh, Peter Bennett, and he in his union role had been participating in media sort of interviews, et cetera, 
Um, and, and, and his department, his agency said to him, you know, you can't keep doing this. Um, and uh, they, they sanctioned him and, and he sued them and uh, he invalidated uh, the law um, that was limiting him in that regard. Uh, the, the federal court said that that was unconstitutional because it breached the implied protection for free speech in our constitution. And so really ever since my, my then boss and still colleague John Wilson told me about that case, uh, I was fascinated in you know, how you um, manage these boundaries between you know, employees in their professional capacity, in the union capacity perhaps, and in their private capacity. Uh, and, and it's such a challenge. And, and if you'll forgive a, a brief history lesson, um, you know, these issues really arise because our employment law comes from England and comes from medieval England. And employment law stems from a time when there were masters and servants and you had people with pretty much no rights who, who worked 24-7 in the homes of others. Or, you know, and, and, and as our law evolved, that was always the starting point. Um, and so the concept of sort of out of hours is sort of foreign to, to the initial approach to our employment law. And, and so that evolved and we then moved into the industrial era and we had factory workers as the sort of archetypal employee. And as long as they rocked up at the factory from nine to five, or you know, back then probably more than nine to five, um, the factory manager didn't care what they did outside of those hours because it was nine to five or you know, whatever. Um, and so we, we had this shift away from this um, era of all-consuming control to very demarcated employment. But in the last century, really, but particularly in the last 10 or 20 years with internet, with social media, and now with COVID and working from home, um, we're, we're having this shift uh, uh, back towards broader employer control. You know, we're having this idea that, that employment is no longer um, what we might call sort of... Um, time service but now it's task performance you know you're employed to do something and it doesn't matter when you do it your, your obligations extend well beyond the workplace um, and the law is really struggling to keep up and so we've had statements you know a famous case uh, about 20 25 years ago that said that employees are entitled to a private life but it's not really clear that's still the case in practice yeah, absolutely. And, and I think particularly where you've got similarly archaic um, codes of conduct that have not been updated in a long period of time, they kind of predate even the social media era and uh, broadcasting and the way that people are able to put their opinions forward online. Exactly. And and public sector employment raises even more complicated questions. I mean, these, these issues are complicated enough in the private sector. Um, when you add in the public sector overlay, it gets even more complicated. Uh, and I appreciate in your situation, you know, you weren't talking about political issues, but, you know, you, we've got a number of cases that I've done a lot of research in relation to, you know, the Michaela Banerjee case in the High Court is, is the best example of public servants expressing political opinions. And I think that's where these issues just gain an even broader layer of complexity, which is public servants yourself, you know, when you were in your previous role, you're members of society. You know, society is better when you're contributing to society and yet public servants are also have all of these sort of traditional obligations of neutrality and impartiality. Now, that wasn't an issue raised squarely in your case, but it has been in all of these other cases, Banerjee just being the most high-profile one. And the question of, of how we, um, you know, reconcile these tensions is, is really difficult. And it's only become more difficult because of social media. You know, in pre-social media, 
it was less of an issue because the ordinary public servant couldn't really express their political opinions to, to a broader audience. Um, you know, there is one famous case in the 60s where a, a department head wrote to a newspaper and, and was sanctioned um, for that, and there was a big controversy. But, but, but these days, you've got all of this in the power of your, your hands. You know, you can tweet your political opinions, um, and, and with that brings these complexities. And unfortunately, I don't think that they're being resolved other than uh, negatively to public servants and negatively to society at large. I, th I think the prevailing trend has just been let's silence the public servants. And given that public servants make up such a, a significant proportion of our workforce, when that happens, no one wins. And I think you've got an increasing trend of, as well of suppressing the right to freedom of expression and right to a private life and the, the instruments that we sign up to outside employment policies and codes of conduct and whatnot, they really make it impossible to live um, in a situation where you can just do another thing uh, once you've clocked off that is an expression of who you are as a person, whether it be, um, you know, I'm passionate about volunteering at so-and-so soup kitchen. Am I mandated to seek permission from my manager to do that? Because it might be, a, you know, a breach of the out-of-hours out of policy. It's just, it's a crazy situation to be in where, your right to fully express yourself as a human being in your spare time is controlled by your public, sex, public sector employer. Yeah, and if I can just throw up two sort of interesting factors here, because I was actually writing about this for the ACT Law Society Journal just yesterday. I think one is to what extent seniority matters in this context or sort of role requirements. And so you can see one argument that, well, if you're a CEO, you know, you're basically getting paid to forfeit your private life. And that's not the case if you're a junior or middle-level employee. On the other hand, you could argue that, you know, if you work in a position of trust, so a bank teller, for example, or maybe a solicitor, you know, your obligations out of hours are different to if you're a truckie or, or a landscaper. Um, so I think that's one factor. But then the other factor is, well, what is it you're doing in your out-of-hours time? And I think there's one argument that it doesn't really matter. Your private life is your private life. But we've got a number of these cases that involve things like getting into fights out of hours. You know, the seminal case in this area where the, 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 the judge said, you know, employees have an entitlement to a private life was two colleagues getting into a fight in the early hours of the morning. There's cases involving, you know, consuming pornography in, in people's own time. To what extent does that differ from someone making political expression? And I think there's actually a real irony in the fact that you've got cases where employees have been protected for having punches, punch-ups out of hours, and you've got employees who are making political expression out of hours and they're not being protected. You know, arguably both should be protected, but these issues just, you know, raise this uncertainty of how you define these boundaries. And as I said, unfortunately, the law isn't currently on the side of, of employees, despite the, you know, sorry, the law is to an extent, but vindicating those rights having employers respect those rights, you know, is not so easy. And I think um, you, you sort of flagged it earlier, but um, the sort of direct consequence of not having that um, ability or freedom to express oneself um, outside of the work environment leads to you not attracting the best and brightest people. Because I think more, more often than not, um, people who are intelligent and have a lot to offer um, are not just satisfied with the, giving a day's work to an employer. Um, that they, they're wanting to do many other things in their spare time. So sucking that out of um, you know the most important jobs in the country is a very dangerous precedent to set. 
Exactly. You know, we want people, we talk about wanting people to bring their whole selves to work, but I think the corollary of that is we need to let them be their whole selves out of work. And sometimes that involves doing different things. And, you know, of course, some of this, there, there are cases where there are tensions between what people do in work and out of work. And, you know, I'm not saying that you can necessarily, you know, be a, a Liberal Party employee in Parliament House during the day and then canvas for Labor at night. You know, I mean, that's a, a ridiculous analogy. But, but, you know, of course, there are cases where there are inconsistencies. But our current law recognises there are limits and recognises that, by and large, employees should have a private life but unfortunately, we see so many cases where that isn't the practical reality. And a lot of this, you know, it, it has a chilling effect, right? Because not everyone, even if the law's on their side, how many people are actually going to take a case, you know, all the way up to the high court, if necessary, to, to vindicate their right to a private life? Um, which is why, you know, I think some of these recent cases are, are so troubling. And uh, it's almost like we need a test case that's really clear to sort of demarcate the boundaries and force some policy change because it's sort of so um, ambiguous. And and I can just tell you from my contacts and networks back in the public service, um, some in the same em- employer that I was with, um, they've told me that they fear for their jobs um, because of what they choose to do in their private lives, um, despite having signed agreements, um, both outside employment and code of conduct agreements, um, where their managers have said that's okay. They're now receiving a lot of pressure to stop doing what they're doing. And one example would be running a social enterprise around education, which is you know a wholly for good and consistent with public sector values uh, pursuit. Another one is around um, being a, a special advisor in the realm of family violence, and um, you know using one's profile to really um, be effective in that space. And to to sort of have those things being curtailed, I think is um, it's quite likely that these people will be lost to the departments they're serving, and um, will will have a terrible impression of of that experience. Yeah, and, and it's such a shame. And, you know, you mentioned we need a test case. Unfortunately, the test case we've had didn't, didn't go well. You know, the Michaela Banerjee case, a, a tweeting public servant, uh, you know, the Department of Immigration criticising immigration policy, arguably not the best test case No, for that reason and others, but it was the test case we had. It went to the High Court and the High Court unanimously said that the, um, the code of conduct in the Federal Public Sector Public Service Act was constitutionally valid and didn't impinge un- unduly on her free speech, um, which has really sort of given a blank check to at least federal government departments um, to limit the right of their employees to express their sel- themselves out of hours. What sort of differences are we seeing in um, private sector employment relationships? I mean, you talked a bit about the toll case and a few others, but um, would you say that uh, private sector employees um, have have far greater um, freedoms and um, distance from scrutiny than public sector employees? Uh, they do in theory um, because, you know, public sector employment has this additional sort of public trust gloss on it that, um, that gives pub- public employers uh, extra degree of oversight and regulation of their their public servants um in in theory and that's not the case for for private sector employees there's this case rose this punch-up case back in 1998 i think it was where um uh, a member of the uh, industrial relations commission said very clearly private employees have a right to a private life unless out of hours conduct reaches these sort of really severe thresholds you know fundamentally undermining trust and confidence with the employer, you know, damaging their employer's interests, 
you know, it's not relevant. We just had a case recently, the toll case, as you mentioned, another punch-up case as it happens, um, where uh, two uh, employees got into a punch-up out of hours. Um, uh, actually, they were away on leave um, at the time and, and one of them was was dismissed and they challenged their dismissal and it's gone to the Fair Work Commission, the full full bench of the Fair Work Commission, um, where, where the commission said that, you know, the getting into a punch-up in your own time doesn't meet this rose test. Um, and, and the added gloss in that case was that uh, the, the employee had been asked to participate in a workplace uh, interview as part of the investigation into the conduct that had occurred, and at least the commission found he'd been dishonest in that. And so one of the grounds that was given for his termination by the commission was that dishonesty. And, and the full bench or so on appeal said, actually, it's unclear that you can rely on that because you're talking about stuff that occurred out of hours. So, you know, you can't just, just because you bring it into the workplace by asking a question in an investigation doesn't mean it's a ground for dismissal. So there's still some uncertainty that lingers there. But as I said, you know, the law is actually reasonably protective of, of private sector employees' uh, private lives. But from what I understand in practice, um, that's not necessarily being respected by, by all employers and, and it's very difficult for private sector employees to vindicate that right because, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to, you know, risk taking them to court, risk legal fees, et cetera. Um, so, I, you know, and I think these issues are only going to become more challenging and complex, you know, more work from home as a result of COVID means um, these intersections, these boundaries between off-duty and on-duty blur even more social media continues to blur these boundaries as well you know i think if anything we really need a, a new compact between employees and employers around these issues but i can't see that on the horizon so what does the future look like then are we in a place because we're spending so much time at home um, in our own environment it, it, it seems that many employers actually prefer employees to be at home because they're more you know, they, they think they can get more done during the day. There's a productivity argument there, but there's equally an expectation when you work from home that you kind of get to this point where you're expected to be on email all the time uh, and you're expected to be contactable all the time because you're at home. And that just is a new thing uh, that we didn't have to deal with a few years ago when it was just when you clock off 5.30 or 6, um, that's it. Yeah, really interesting question where the future lies um, and we're seeing some trends in other countries. So in France, I mean, of course the French are onto this. You know, All over it. Um, I've spent a lot of time in France, so I feel that that's not a stereotypical comment but, but it's really the <laughs> truth. Um, uh, the French are talking about this right to disconnect, this right to switch off, that outside your, your contract hours, you know, you're not supposed to be contracted and uh, contacted, sorry, by, by your employer if, I think if that proceeds and if that spreads around the world, that could be a really positive development. Um, but, but I think the converse is a, a lot of employees are very happy to be working when required. Um, you know, to use myself as an example, like I I'm sometimes have to work evenings, weekends, whatever, to get things done in my different roles, and I'm very happy with that. Um, but, but that happiness and that willingness to do that, I guess, comes with a price of, you know, respecting flexibility and respecting value and, and uh, value add that, that comes and, and then, you know, recognising that in other areas um, and in terms of that, some of that flexibility and recognition of, of, you know, you as a holistic person with different interests and pursuits. And so I think good employers and employers that want to promote, uh, you know, talent and, and uh, re retain and attract uh, and, and nurture people 
you know, we'll, we'll recognise that as we have this, this continuing shift that some employment practices need to change uh, and those that don't, I think, will miss out and, and will have employees leaving um, because they're not happy with this sort of added oversight and scrutiny without benefits, without the flip side of that. Just um, from a kind of common standpoint, what are the things you definitely shouldn't do uh, on social media or on broadcasting platforms if you're an employee? Uh, well, I, I, of course, um, put in the caveat that none of this is legal advice. Um, but I, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, treating these things as a, a public square is, is the starting point. Uh, you know, I sometimes perhaps express frustration on Twitter, but I, I don't think I'm ever sort of rude to people beyond the pale of, of ordinary discourse and conversation. I think being sensible with privacy settings is a good idea. You know, I have Instagram and I think it's 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 private because it's my personal account and then I have Twitter and it's more of a public discourse and, you know, things I say and post reflect that that difference and I think that's, that's important. Um, you know, I think... Those sort of disclaimers don't really add much value legally, but it's probably better than nothing. Um, and, yeah, like I, I really, you know, when the Banerjee case happens, you know, I'm from Canberra originally. I have a lot of friends uh, who are public servants. And one of the really disappointing things about that case and some of these other cases is the chilling effect it has. And friends of mine saying to me, you know, oh, well, I won't post even on my private Facebook about political issues, um, you know, b- because I'm worried and I'm nervous. Um I don't think we need to go that far. I think, you know, people are still entitled to express opinions to their friends in closed formats. But certainly if I was a public servant, I probably wouldn't be expressing political views on Twitter to to the world at large. I I hate that that I have to say that, um, but but I think that is the cautious approach in light of recent case law. Um, Again, I, I, I don't want that to be the case, but I think at the moment it is. Well said. When just just taking a slightly different tack, um, when you're doing your reporting um, for the, for the various publications that you work with, um, how hard is it to kind of switch hats from your day to day law job to become a journalist and just start writing as a journalist? Because I imagine you spend a lot of time drafting, um, you know, lots of legal documents, and then you become a, this writer about cycling and other sports. How does that switch happen? Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that recently because uh, I went down to Adelaide to cover the swimming trials recently and I've been really busy at work and then flew to Adelaide and then I was at the pool suddenly covering swimming. And, you know, it, it, it literally felt like quite the shift um, similarly. You know, I had a, in my um, legal capacity, had an op-ed for The Guardian about the recent prosecution and sentencing of Witness K, a whistleblower, and on the same day, I had one of my swimming coverage pieces online. It was just quite a juxtaposition um, of, <laughs> of my range of, of interests. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I love that challenge and I love that diversity. And there's just, I, I, I love all of what I do, but I just particularly love doing all of it and, and, and jumping between you know, having the hat on for one thing and, and not for another. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was covering the Women's World Cup in France, uh, mainly for The Guardian and also for SBS. And um, I was working in London at the time and, and I'd been at the World Cup for a few weeks and then I had to pop back to London for a day to, to speak uh, on a legal issue at a, at a conference and then back to France and just taking off the jeans and T-shirt and putting on the suit and tie and then, you know, going back to France. It's, you know, it's 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 a challenge but it's one that I, I love um, and I, I just, I think that forces you to, 
you know, keep the brain switched on and, and refreshed and, 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 and juggling different approaches to things. Um, but the creativity of that I, I love. I'm not sure I've fully answered your question there, but I, no, I, I think love that, it. I, I love that's, it. That's a pretty good effort. That's a pretty good effort. I'm wondering, I mean, look, you need a lot of gas in the tank to do lots of different things like yourself. And I, I think you've got pretty incredible work ethic. You're often, you know, very responsive quite late at night. Um, how do you kind of switch off and regenerate? And and what do you do? <laughs> I surf. Um, I love surfing uh, and I really uh, find it refreshing to be in the water in nature um, bright and early in the morning when the sun's rising. It's, it's nothing else is like that. I was really fortunate in a way. I was living in London and COVID happened and I decided, look, this is not going to go well and I got out of there and I flew home and I had to self-isolate um, uh, when I arrived uh, and, and my parents have a place on the south coast and I self-isolated there and I haven't really left, to be honest. Um, uh, I'm sort of getting to Canberra and Sydney and Melbourne a bit but just trying to be at the coast as much as possible because being able to surf every morning truly is, you know, there's Tracks magazine, an iconic surfing magazine, you know, it used to have this tagline, you know, it's, you know, the next best thing too, and and really surfing is the next best thing to 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 to, to nothing. Uh, to me, it's it's what refreshes me and keeps me going. And do you have other sort of habits, routines, uh, or practices you, you recommend for people who want to be high performers and do multiple things? Uh, I I read a lot. Um, uh, uh, you know, magazines and nonfiction. Um, uh, and I find to be a good journalist, you know, I'm often asked, like, how do you become a good writer? Um, and I always say, you know, no one's born a good writer. Um, you know, every time you write, you improve. And like, I've been writing for uh, over a decade now. And, and, you know, if I look back on some of my earlier work, it's not as good, not very good. And I hope I'm okay now and I hope I'm getting better. But I think, you know, you, you've just, whatever it is, but particularly I think writing, it's just about practice, repetition, anyone can become a good writer with, with practice and, and with thought. But I think a flip, a corollary of that is, is that reading, um, uh, I, you know, I read uh, other people's work. I read, um, you know, magazines, long form, short form. I, I just love to read and I think that makes you a better writer. Um, and it also, I, you know, I think my editors sometimes get annoyed at me, but I love pulling in, you know, little snippets of this or that or, uh, you know, a reference to a classical writer or a play or novel, or whatever, um, which sort of comes with, you know, my interest in reading. Um, and, and again, I appreciate this is a bit cliched, but uh, I guess I love what I do. And so none of it feels like work to me. And, you know, I often might be working, you know, six or seven days a week um, across the various things that I do, but it, it never feels like a chore. I wake up each day really excited to do what I do because I love all of it. Um, and, yeah, so it's cliche and I, I really appreciate that not everyone all the time will have that. And, of course, I've had jobs and I've done work from time to time that I don't have that love and passion for and, and I think that's that's life sometimes. But I think to the extent that you can find what really motivates you, um, you know, or at least motivates you 80% of the time, you know, that that, that gives you the drive to, to work really hard to succeed. Yeah, that's so well said. Just on what you were saying before about deliberate practice and um, how do you get good at things, I reckon my first 150 episodes of Humans of Purpose are awful. I, I, I would not listen to any of them if you paid me. And um, it's it just takes a certain amount of time to get good at anything. And um, 
you know, then you you just don't look back. You only look forward and you look for incremental improvement um, and change. And then you sort of develop some new tools and new new tricks and just sort of roll with it. Yeah. And so just the other thought that's come to me is, you know, I think when you place yourself in stressful environments, um, it gives you tolerance for, for pressure. Uh, and, you know, I, I, nothing in my life is more stressful. So when you cover... Um, uh, sport and particularly when you cover live sport and football, uh, soccer, and you know if you're doing a match report or a column on a game, you've typically got a file within five minutes of the end of the game. So you know a football match goes for ninety minutes. Um, after ninety five minutes, you've got to have something ready for a reader. Um, and sometimes if you're writing for a newspaper and they've got a print deadline, you've got to file even before that. And nothing is more stressful than looking at a blank document on your laptop while you're watching a football game and thinking, I've got to write 800 words about this and I've got 90 minutes or whatever. And that's, there's no choice. You know, if you're having a bad day, if you have writer's block, tough. The, the paper is not going to wait for anyone. Um, the, the space has to be filled. And, and so I think if you deliberately put yourself in really stressful positions, um, gives you a tolerance and so when I do other you know particularly in my law job or public speaking or whatever I never really am daunted by the stress and the pressure because I just think back to you know being at the world cup with with a deadline and an empty piece of paper to fill um and uh yeah yeah I think um what you've alluded to there is the importance of weaving adversity into your everyday life I think it makes you more resilient it makes you better at everything you do and it also makes you more comfortable with trying anything new which is um incredibly valuable yeah i agree entirely and i think some of the biggest uh you know moments and shifts in my life have come from some from defeat from rejection i um you know had one point planned to go and study overseas and had applied for a scholarship and and was shortlisted and interviewed and, and i thought that was going to be the next chapter in my life and then i didn't get it and Thankfully, that this this next role came up, and I moved to London. But I think I I was in, in I, I sort of jumped at that opportunity because of the rejection and, and the the hurt that followed in a way that I might not have you know if, if that hadn't happened. Um, so yeah, I think putting yourself out there, uh, you know, accepting that the the risk uh, and the risk of, of rejection that comes with that. I think as a freelance journalist, you get rejected every day, pretty much. Um, you know, even I've been writing for. For, I've been running for the Guardian for eight years. Um, I've, I've I've pitched them hundreds of times, written for them a lot, a lot, and yet still sometimes they say, "Sorry, we're not interested in what you have to say." Um, and yeah, I think having that time and again is probably pretty good for keeping your ego in check. Oh, it's amazing. Nothing like it. It's just ego uh, vaccination almost. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, when you're covering things like swimming or um, you know, women's football or men's football or whatever you might cover, how much time do you have to actually have to spend preparing, watching footage, doing research, like getting to know all the swimmers and the strokes and the, the female players and their, their kind of the roles and club history? Like how, how do you make time for that and how much of that do you actually do? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, a bit of a trade secret, I guess. Um, I, uh, you know, I love sport. I love all sport. I, I'd be lying if I said that I knew everything about all sports. And sometimes you've just got to jump in. Um, you know, I think it helps to stay up. You know, I follow closely the sports that I'm passionate about: uh, football, uh, cycling, basketball. Um, but you know, swimming is a great example. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on swimming, but I'm going to cover the Olympics, and so I needed to learn. And so, in the last six months, I've just been following it closely. I've gone to 
you know, the trials to, to, to really in, in, integrate myself into that environment, understand the storylines, look out for things. You know, I've, you know I, I deliberately went to the trials so that come the Olympics, I'll be ready. Um, you know, it's, it sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, obviously the, the Olympians, the, the swimmers go to the trials to qualify and then to go. And similarly, I went there to, to do my own preparation so that, you know, when, you know, when someone wins a medal in Tokyo and I've got to write about them, you know, I know a bit more about them because I've been around them. I've interviewed them in the mix zone at the trials. And, um, yeah, so which is a long way of saying that, yeah, I think preparation is key. Um, but sometimes, you know, you're always going to be limited in the time you can dedicate to anything. Um, uh, but, you know, you've just got to do what you can. Do you have um, anything coming up on the horizon that you're particularly excited about, a new direction, any sort of um, key and up-and-coming pieces of writing or research that you might be tapping into that you want to share? Oh, I can't wait to go to the Olympics. Uh, it's it's a month from today uh, that I fly to Tokyo and I just can't wait. Um, it's going to happen, right? I hope so. I've um, been very fortunate in, in my life. I've, I've covered a lot of big sporting events. I've covered the Tour de France, the, the Men's and Women's World Cups, a lot of big cycling races around the world, but the Olympics will be like nothing else. Um, so I can't wait for that. Um, I, I have a, a piece in, in the monthly magazine next month about climate litigation. It's an area that I've been really getting interested in because I think it's so important. You know, the climate crisis is the issue of our time and without political action, the courts need to step in and, and they're beginning to. So that's something that I really enjoyed writing um, and something I find a lot of inspiration from. Some of the most amazing climate litigators in Australia that despite the political landscape do what they do. Um, yeah. Fantastic, mate. Well, look, it's been a terrific conversation. Very, very exciting for me to actually see you for the first time despite having a relationship on the phone for the past few months. So that's been awesome. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter um, uh, at Kieran Pender. I tweet a lot. Um, it's an odd Twitter feed because I have the law stuff and the sports stuff and probably have a lot of confused followers. But um, if you want that mix, then, uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter. How else can we get you? Do you have a sub stack as well or something? Oh, yes. And I, uh, I haven't actually written, written it for a couple of weeks, but I, I, I like, because I like reading so much, I often share these articles I'm writing with my friends. And one of my friends said to me, like, Kieran, you should put all this in a newsletter. And so I have. So, you know, I'm a bit behind, but in theory, at least I have a sub stack called uh, the Pender Literary Supplement. I'm waiting for the Times Literary Supplement uh, to sue me for trademark infringement. Um, the, the, the PLS. Rather than the TLS. Um, I, I do write for the TLS. So I'm hoping they'll take pity on me. <laughs> That's awesome. Mate, thank you so much for being with me. Um, hang on a minute. We'll debrief. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. <laughs>